Coming up, Stephanie Elaine joins Ileana in just a minute. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, it's the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, starring Ileana Douglas. Eavesdrop with Ileana as she interviews Hollywood's most prominent players about filmmaking, acting, and what really happens on the set of your favorite flicks and TV shows. Hello, everyone. It's Ileana Douglas, and uh, welcome to the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Tamara Bird. Hey, everybody. Now, we actually are matching. I've got stripes underneath. Yes. I've got them on top. We always, we are always. It happens very frequently. in sync. We are in sync. Um, It's uh, it's fun to have the summer to have time off to do uh, other things. Yes. You were traveling, and uh, I did, uh, I was doing some work with Turner Classic Movies, one of which is a huge surprise, which everyone's going to be very, very excited about. Yeah. I will wait for the uh, announcement on on that, but uh, someone I really admire and idolize, and uh, that will be taking place. And then another thing I was able to do for Filmstruck was uh, talk about and do an in-depth interview about my grandfather. And, oh, nice. And one of the great things about TCM is we always, you know, they're so open and cooperative. So we had, I said, geez, we've, I feel like we've done so much about being there in his later career. And l- let's have some fun talking about his early career and being on the road mm-hmm. and his uh, great-grandparents who were songwriters and you know, work with John Philip Sousa and we're on wow. the, uh, briefly on the vaudeville circuit in Chicago. And uh, just I love all the uh, bohemian sort of crazy of elements, which I talked about that I think his likability factor comes from the fact that he wasn't just a leading man, that he had, you know, all of this kind of knockabout uh, colorful background was in you know Europe and mm-hmm. traveled around the country and with this company called the Jesse Bonestell Players with Ralph Bellamy and Gail Sondergaard and oh wow yeah there's another company called the Jesse Owen Players so you know this idea that you were you know you go to a town you go to the local boarding house you put on your show uh, uh, hopefully you don't get in too much trouble with the locals so that you get arrested sometimes they were arrested oh you my know. gosh it just sounded like it just sounds really crazy. And, yeah. Uh, it just must have been a really fun time. Right. And an incredible foundation for becoming an actor later because you, you know, the, the live experience and yes. you know, charming people as well as just doing your job of. Yes. But my favorite care. question was yeah. that uh, uh, the producer asked me, do you think your grandfather has has a, a trait uh that you share and I and she started to laugh and I said I think you're going to say the wobble in the voice cuz I I think we he he had this well he had this kind of wobbly uh-huh. uh, voice which sometimes I think I I have uh in a in a kind of laughing way so if you look at a Melvin Douglas movie and hear him he had that kind of chirp Aww. chirping in his voice and you've been reading all sorts of interesting things i have in the so news. there's catch, a, catch me up there was a news story about rotten tomatoes so mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about um Stephanie's diversity work later, yes, and Stephanie this, Elaine, this came out in um, Rotten Tom- in the Hollywood Reporter today. Uh-huh. They talked about how Rotten Tomatoes has a very um, their critic base yes. happens to be 
predominantly white and male, right? you know, as we've talked about the academy is yes. and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so now they are making moves to bring in different critics mm-hmm. to be more inclusive and foster diversity among those writing film and television reviews for Rotten Tomatoes. So they've already hired, or not hired, but included 200 new Tomatometer approved critics. And that of that group, they're roughly 70% female. Uh-huh. So it's really going to change the dynamic and potentially change the the ratings of films because of, you know, different groups of people liking different things. Well, you know, it's interesting. I never read reviews unless they're 20 years old by Roger Ebert or Excellent plan. <laughs> I think that's a very good idea. Uh, I'm not, I, I don't look, I mean, I know how important it is in terms of your movie, but I don't read reviews because I really want to go into it, not, you know, inform yes. kind of my own uh, opinion yes. um, about the film. Do, but, it, but when friends go, oh, you've got to go see X, Y, and Z, do you listen to that even? No. You no, don't? Okay. No, I wait till, you know, till the 11th hour to see Wonder Woman or Black Panther <laughs> Crazy rich Asians, because I so I sort of have a feeling I'm going to be like, I think the young kids like this, and you know, you always you know admire, but I am I mean, am I going to have more fun, uh, you know, watching an Otto Preminger film? Probably, probably. So I try to keep uh, open minded, but again, just because I'm I'm, it's a combination of being a student of wanting to become a a better filmmaker, yes. and I feel for myself that becoming a better filmmaker is looking at directors that I really admire and starting from their first films all the way to the to the yeah. end and listening yeah. to commentary and that that's where I learn most of my things you know w- what I watch popular movies for is to see what is popular sure to see oh it's a lot of quick cutting or it's this or it's that or the the biggest thing that bothers me in movies is the need to explain uh plot you know, when the characters stop the movie and go, uh, or, I mean, we've been uh, dating for a year yeah. and you only started law school and we moved into the apartment in Cincinnati <laughs> and your mother, you know, had, got married. I'm like, I, why are we stopping the movie to, to, you know, to know, to know this? So it seems to be very, very important. I always feel like it's studio notes that, you know, yes. that have come in. But I think it's great, obviously, that there's more female uh, reviewers, hopefully, to champion. You know, what I really want is male or female uh, Let's to champion films that are a little bit more difficult. Or outside s- the norm or outside yeah. of the popular. You know, what I love is, you know, somebody like Pauline Kael or Roger Ebert, you know, they were following filmmakers' career and they saw something in them, they saw some vision in them, and they supported that. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Right. I liked it. I hated it. Right. Um, you know, and and so to be interesting. I, I, for me, more than male, female, it, it it almost seems like young, old. A lot of movies mm. that I kind of just go, I don't get it. I think it's a movie for 12-year-olds, but I understand that, you know, that it's going to be popular. Um, but when I was growing up, you know, my parents took me to see movies like Network and yes. Amacord. And it was yes. a completely, we, like, we saw grown-up movies. Yes. There was no really such thing as kids' no. movies. There was the occasional Disney film that came out. But I think yeah. the only kids' movie that I saw would be a movie like Jaws 
Like that was kids. That, I'm serious. Like that would be E.T., Jaws. Like those were considered to be kids movies, but they were incredible. You know, they yes, were. They yes. were I'm just laughing play. at the idea of Jaws being a kids film. My, my, my parents would never see a movie like Foul Play or Arthur, you know. Um, but anyway, we go on and on. L- I want to bring, bring in Stephanie Elaine. She's uh, fantastic, and we work together. She's a producer, and we work together on uh, Trailblazing Women. She was one of my uh, fabulous uh, co-hosts, and she has uh, been a longtime producer, known, of course, for some uh, amazing films like Hustle and Flow, Black Snake Moan, as well as The Muppets from Space, which she's going to talk about. And currently she's an executive producer on the Netflix show Dear White People. So please welcome Stephanie Elaine. Thank you so much for being here, Stephanie. Hello. It's so good to see you. I know. We had such a blast doing uh, The Trailblazing Women when we we were doing our research about uh, June Mathis. Wasn't it fun? It was fun. To hear about all these accomplishments that all these women did so many years ago. It is fun. And it was such an opportunity to do research on people I didn't know. So it was awesome. And and do, uh, well, I love Hollywood stories anyway, just about hearing what, you know. What they went through. It's every time I do research, it's like how many people died on this movie. I was just doing research on a movie called Captain's Courageous. Yes. And so it was like, oh, two or three people oh. fell over the side of that yeah. film. That was always that seemed to be the biggest. So, you know, what I guess when you look at our current problems, they don't seem as bad as having to tell someone we lost an extra. That's true, although it does still happen. Oh god. Remember Sarah Jones. Yes, yes. that's true. That's too bad. Um, well, Stephanie, I'm going to start with my favorite question, of okay. course. Do you remember, which I didn't get to ask you on TCM, do yes. you remember the first film you saw and who took you to see it? I do, and I was really trying to get specific on that. Yes. But I, I came up with two things. One was my parents took me to the drive-in to see, I think it must have been Cotton Comes to Harlem. I didn't even look uh-huh. it up and see what the year was, but I remember being in the back seat. And looking back on it, I realized it was their like one date night or something. And, you know, the kids were just piled in the back seat and hopefully asleep. But we were not asleep. So that was (laughs) that was interesting because that was an R-rated movie. And I was like, ooh. Yes, I always associate the driving. Yeah, my my parents saw MASH and I remember the same thing. We were supposed to be asleep. Exactly. That didn't work. But the real (laughs) movie that I think is is the movie that I always like to talk about is The Godfather. Uh Because I was, I think, 12 years old when it came out, but I'd already read the book. And just that connection between what was on the page and what was on the screen, just Mm -hmm. it it ignited just a fascination of what that meant, translation Mm -hmm. from page to the screen. So Mm -hmm. it's still one of my favorite movies. Was that a movie? Yeah. Uh, Was that a movie that did you, I mean, did you want to be, what was, you know, your transition of getting into show business? Did you want to write? Did you want to act? Did you know, I, I was an artist. I did it all. I danced. I wrote. I acted. Um, and then I got pregnant right out of college. Mm-hmm. And so my, my focus shifted to be doing something that I could uh, raise my son on financially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I segued into reading, which was just an extension of an English degree. So it was an extension of critically analyzing material. Um, and that, I realized, was a real Hollywood job. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe people were just paying you to read and write a yeah. little synopsis. So that was really my entree. I didn't understand the business. I didn't know who did what. I mm-hmm. didn't understand studios or executives or any of that. Um, 
But I figured it out just eventually. I realized that I could go from being a reader to being some kind of creative something somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what happened. The uh, Now, you mentioned you were a dancer. I yes. didn't get to ask you uh, why. You know, I love dance. I'm oh, obsessed yes. with dance. Yes. What kind of dancing? So I started <laughs> dancing. I dropped out of school when I was 19 and moved to Hawaii. And I started dancing ballet with Nolan Dingman, who was a very sort of famous uh, ballet teacher there. But I went back to school and eventually went to CalArts. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, my dance introduction was Donald Byrd. Donald Byrd is an amazing modern dancer. Um, he heads up the Seattle company Spectrum Dance mm-hmm. and is the godfather of my youngest son. And, you know, just dance was such a, a beautiful expression of emotions, really. And um, and I, I loved it. I came to it late. But I did see people who were adult dancers going to New York and getting into companies. And it wasn't until we got postcards back saying, I made it. I'm in New York. I'm making $200 a week. I was like, <laughs> uh, check, please. <laughs> I knew that I knew that I didn't, I wanted to make money and I wanted to have a family. And those are two things that being a dancer, you know, sort of contraindications to doing. Does it have, uh, I mean, obviously it takes incredible discipline. Has that, has any dance background served you well as a, as a producer? You know, I did choreograph um, one of the episodes of Dear White People. I love which it. Which is fantastic. Which and it was one? So, so fun. we can all watch it's it. It's episode six, season okay. one. Uh, there's a little, there's a little dance in that. Awesome. Um, and I just did a little bit of the same thing in the movie that I just finished producing, uh, Life Size 2, for mm-hmm. Freeform. Um, yeah, it comes naturally, and it's just joyful and fun. I love dancing. Yeah. If the world danced more. Right? That's what I think. I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> Everybody knows around here. Um, okay. So I'm going to ask you the stupid question. Okay. You know, the, the, cause everybody wants to know. And I had a, one producer here who just said he, he, there were three rules of producing were get the money, get the money, and get the money. But I said, well, there's got to be more to it than that. So I was oh. wondering again if you could offer some insights. Oh, into sure. Sure. I mean, sure, get the money is one part of it. But I think for me, I always start with story since mm-hmm. I, I, I came from story. My mm-hmm. degree is in English. And, and, um, to me, what's on the page is the most important thing. So mm-hmm. what I do is I, I, I read a lot and until I find something that just makes my heart beat fast. That's my way of saying mm-hmm. this is it for me. Um, I get excited. I, it's like it's like a lover. It's like you meet somebody for the first time. And you go, oh, I feel something. What is that? Mm-hmm. That's that's my little ticker inside to say this is something that you can that you can relate to. And then as I've matured, um, there are certain things I don't want to do, and there are certain things I do want to do. So I've sort of refined my mission statement to um, really focus on uh, roles that have been traditionally underrepresented mostly women, mostly women of color, stories that we don't know that we should, mm-hmm. um, and just the expression of, of, of humanness amongst all of us because my first movie, Being Boys in the Hood, I really understood the value of representation and the mirror that that we hold up to society through art. Mm-hmm. And it, it's transformative. It changes people. It changes hearts. It changes the world. And so the 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 more seasoned that I've become, the more obvious my mission statement is to me, at least, and hopefully to the world. What do you think some of the mistakes a young director makes when choosing their producer? I mean, what's the mm. most important thing that a director should be 
because I find one of the easiest things people go, I want to produce your movie. Right. And as a first, you know, you get thrilled that anybody's even interested sure, in you sure. remotely. Yeah. And, you know, and then, you know, six months, you're like, what, what, what are, they, are they doing? What are they yeah. doing exactly? Yeah. I mean, every single person that I attach to material that I'm controlling, it's mm-hmm. the same thing, which is, do you understand it intrinsically? Are you passionate about it? Is it something that's going to keep you up at night until it gets done? Um, are you a good spokesperson for that, whether you're the DP or the any any key role? Anybody who comes close to the material has to share that kind of passion. And it's it is um, it's the kind of thing when you sit down with somebody after they've read it and you say, what's the most important thing to you about this material? And mm-hmm. you can tell you can hear it. The difference between, oh, I, you know, I need work for the last two months of the year versus I've right. been waiting to help tell this story for so long. Mm-hmm. And so for any young director, I would say that and choosing your producer, really grill them, really mm-hmm. make sure that they're in sync with you and understand what you're trying to do and um, the ways in which are important to you to do it. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back a little bit because I love the idea that you're, you're – is it true to say your career sort of started at CAA, reading scripts? Yes, that is very, very true. Well, that's – in terms of show business, for me, it's like – that seems like the heady days of, you know, the 90s of, of when movie making really was – I was having a conversation with a very famous actress, and we always say, "Remember when the movies were fun, right? <laughs> In the '90s, and uh, and and that the experience of being at CAA. Were you at the the, the famous building? Yes, on, I was. Oh yes, I was. God. I mean, so what does that feel like to be in that environment? Well, I started there probably in 1986. Mm-hmm. something like that. Um, I was a reader. We were um, on a different floor than the... Than the and so I already have an... Ima- you know, like, I feel like, is it like the apartment with John Lennon? Are you all at desks? Like, I mean, for us, because this is pre-computers, <laughs> okay? Oh so this was a bank of typewriters in wow. a common area, and then a little nook where you could read. Yes. I started as the reader of books. Mm-hmm. That you, you had to work books before you got to screenplays. So right. I started in books. Um, and you would read the book, you would put it down, you'd go sit, put your little paper in, and just yeah. start from memory, just remembering what you wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, it was a, it was a page of, of synopsis, a page of comments, how well will it translate into the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you would get to go upstairs. And so once you got upstairs, yeah, that's kidding. where all the, all the agents were. And this was in the time of um, Michael Ovitz oh, yeah. and Ron Meyer and like it just beautiful it was, art on the wall. Beautiful art. Yeah, it was, it was, it was quite, and I knew at the time that even though I didn't know much, I knew that it was meaningful and I knew that it was powerful. Mm-hmm. And um, to be fair, so many of those relationships that I made there have served me throughout my career. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just fun. It was good to be able to, because, you know, it's true, not many people read in Hollywood. So being the reader gave me such confidence and strength because I knew the material. I knew right. who was a good reader. I mm-hmm. knew Whatever the scripts were, I would get on top of them and I would read them because it was the easiest thing in the world for me. I was trained to be a reader through through school. So mm-hmm. um, that was sort of my mantra is read everything. Read mm-hmm. more than the next person. Like Will Smith, you know, his whole thing is like I'll die in the treadmill next to somebody else. I will read myself to death. I love to read. And it, it, it's the, it made the difference between staying as a reader and advancing. Uh-huh. 
God, I love hearing that. And did uh, did and and what do you remember? Any standout scripts that you read? Oh God, yeah. I mean, you know, what you remember is the ones you passed on. <laughs> <laughs> Like Braveheart. I was like, who is going to I want to it. see Braveheart? You know, and then I saw the movie and I was like, oh. Well, sometimes it is hard to read. Uh, oh, I, well, know. there were huge, huge sections of, of uh, description with very little dialogue. So right. it was a very dense, dense script and it was long. It was yes. very, very long. And it was, in my mind, you know, just just Vikings. I just couldn't, you know what I mean? It was like, oh. <laughs> uh, but of course, I ended up loving, loving that movie. But yeah, you know, you 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 spot the good ones. Um, Do you know? Is it like cliche that you know in the first five pages? I I always feel like I can if it doesn't grab me. Yeah, you can tell right away by the writing. I think you know after five or ten pages whether you want to even finish it. Um, and that's what happened when I read my first script that I championed as a young uh, CE, which is Boys in the Hood. I was like, yeah. oh god, this this the writing. The language, mm-hmm. the, the presence of, of of a voice is there, and uh, and that really did set me on my trajectory because Singleton just just beat into me that my job was to support him. Well, this was sort of an interesting story because I was reading because he was a reader. Two. Well, no, he wasn't a reader. I was trying to replace myself in the story department because, as you know, there's not that many people of color in any of these studios or any of the departments. So I was leaving and I thought, I have to find another person of color. And somebody said, oh, this kid from USC wants to do it. So I called him in. And as soon as he sat down, I realized he had no intention of even wanting this job. He wanted to pitch me on Boys in the Hood. Right. That was why he was there. Yeah. And I guess he saw a young, you know, black exec and figured this was that was my way in. So, um, so that was our story. He never worked as a reader. I see. I see. At least not at because so soon after that meeting, we bought the script, and two months later, we were in production. So, are you when you say that there's only you know a couple people of color? Is that uncomfortable? Are you conscious of that? Like, do you have to then go? Why aren't there more scripts? Like, how many scripts are? Are you you have to be the one who who champions those shit? You those- know, Ileana, it's such a it's it's a it's a sad double edged sword because you do want to be the one who is an authority, right? But mm-hmm. then at the same time, you don't want to be the only one who's an authority. Because exactly. Yeah. You, you want the material to speak for itself, right? Um, without context or explanation or why this or why that. Right. But the fact of the matter is that. So many people live, and even more so in silos and in their own bubbles, that they mm-hmm. don't really have an understanding of other. And so it did fall on me, and, and thank God, the first 10 years of my um, executive work at, at the studio, I, mm-hmm. Boys in the Hood was my first movie. So after that, I was like, okay, I'm in a position here right. to get these movies through the system and out into the world not in a small little indie way, but in mm-hmm. a huge studio way. Right. And so that became my quest so early on, which was truly a blessing because just, you know, working with John on Poetic Justice and Higher Learning and mm-hmm. Robert Rodriguez's first few movies and Darnell Martin. And it just, it, it made sense to me that I was the person who could not only understand the work, but articulate the the value of that work to my bosses and to the other people at the table. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I loved about seeing uh, Boys in the Hood is, I guess, I-, I was living in New York at the time, but I I love any movie that explores an area of a city that I don't know about. And I, you know, L.A. is such a 
great cosmopolitan place where all sorts of stories mm-hmm. are happening all you know and and so this becomes like oh what a great uh well, exploration absolutely and isn't that what's one of the great things and it doesn't about... have to be like the huxtables you know no. it doesn't have to be no it doesn't but it, it, it it's a window into a world you don't know exactly and once you get inside that window you realize these are human beings and right. that's the value of it which right. is just to show that we're all really the same no matter what we eat or how we converse or what we love to do that, mm-hmm. you know, there's a commonality. The, uh, and, and so with that, that, that film went into, was it a hard film to get uh green lit? Did it, was it talking easy? about boys? Yeah. Um, you know, it was a really interesting time because Don Steele mm-hmm. uh, was running the studio. Uh, this is, <laughs> this is so long ago. This is when um, Columbia was in Burbank. And they shared the lot with Warner Brothers. Oh, wow. Um, and Don was getting fired, and um, Peter Goober and John Peters were coming in. Uh-huh. We They bought the lot in Culver City. They were moving. We weren't, ma- you know, it was a transition from Coke to Sony. Everything was in flux. We weren't making anything at the time, which is how I think we kind of scooted through the right. system. Um, but I knew enough to know that I had to approach each person who was going to be at that table and ask them personally to read it for me. I was the only mm-hmm. black person. Can you read this for me and talk to me about it before we get to the table? Because as you know, there's a weekend right. read. Friday they give you an assignment, and Monday you come back and you talk about everything you've read. And I wanted to have a one-on-one to let people know why. It was important. I went to school in Inglewood. I knew these kids and I valued their story and I felt their story needed to be told. But by the time we got there, it was maybe a month later. We just moved in. It was the very first weekend read in Culver City. By this time, Frank Price had been installed. This was crazy times. Mm-hmm. And um, everybody, everybody who I thought had my back was like, mm, you know, I mean, is this really the kind of movie we really want to make mm-hmm. now? And it wasn't. I mean, the studios were not making $5 million uh, independent-like movies with, right. without movie stars. We just weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, but Frank Price is also a story guy, and he saw the value in that story. And Amy Pascal, who is my mentor, who was my mentor, um, also had my back, and 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 we ended up. They he said, yeah, we're going to do it. It was pretty awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about what the set and being on the set, and I'm going to do the same thing with Hustle and Flow because sure. I love when things go wrong on oh. the set because then that's when the fun. That's when it, that's when because I can't curse. So yeah, it, it doesn't. <laughs> that's when it hits the fan. Yeah, you, you're so fatigued by the time you've got the thing. Up and on its up feet. Up and on its feet, you right. go, oh, God. But now, at the same time, this, film this it. sort of indefatigable like energy it, takes place where it's, it's like, you know, four yeah. in the morning and you're just alert. Right. Um, which is which is fun, too. Yeah. Well, I always say, like, with producers, you know, when I'm like, do I want to be sitting with this person at four o'clock in the morning that's when, a good, every, that's a good when everything weather. has gone wrong and exactly. we've had to move locations exactly. and no, I'm up against true. it? It's true. It's She's true. in her parka. Always have a sense of humor. That's how I get yes, through it. Yes, right? I agree. I agree. So did you have any kind of, uh, these? Are, you know, anything that goes wrong, Any anything that we can look in the movie and go, well, that was a crazy day. Oh, that was yes, a great I day. Or... I do. I do. So on Boys in the Hood, yeah. a lot of stuff was happening. But the one thing that you can actually look at the movie and see is mm-hmm. um, we had an amazing producer. Um, I hired Steve Nicolaitis, who I'd known for years and who had produced a bunch of Rob Reiner movies. And he was really looking for something that he could sink his soul into. And mm-hmm. I introduced them and they hit it off. And so he was there every single day. 
Except for one day. One day he had to go do something else. And when he got back, he realized they had shot the entire sequence of um, Trey, Furious Styles, bringing his son Trey home from fishing. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're singing, ooh, child. They're, they're singing and they're driving and they're laughing and they look over and they see Doughboys being led away by the cops. That whole sequence, we drive by the entire film crew. <laughs> There's the trailers... Crafty, the whole nine. And to this day, people don't see it because they're so involved with the father and the son at that moment. And that is truly movie magic. I love stuff like that. That's uh, and and go back and look. It's it's hilarious. Um, So it goes to sign. It becomes a huge hit. Did it just change your light, your career? It did. It changed everything. And so then now you have this moment where. Did you have properties ready to go because of the success, or did you scramble and go, okay, what what's going to be my next? No, because I was a I was a studio executive. Mm-hmm. I I went from being a CE to a VP because I brought that movie in. Mm-hmm. So they put me in charge of it. I had no idea. This is really fake yeah. it till you make it all the way. Um, and um, but then afterwards, it was such a hit. It made so much money. It was you know touted. It was you know, the Oscar nominations and all that kind of stuff, they basically said, well, maybe we should just let Steph do what she wants to do. Because up till this point, I'd been part of the table discussing last action hero or things that, mm-hmm. you know, I'd read and here's my two cents and they'd go off and do what they wanted to do. So that, so that really gave me the leverage to just focus on what I was interested in, which mm-hmm. was just an amazing blessing. So you know, John and I made three movies when I was at the studio. We made two two more after that. Um, I flew down to Texas and met with Robert Rodriguez when I saw his um, original El Mariachi, which was in Spanish, right. and, and brought him back to the studio. And I just spent a decade there really just focused on indie-spirited movies that had the backing of a big studio. Mm-hmm. Well, that was like a really f- great time, I think, for for movies, I, I think. The all, 90s, yeah. Yeah, the 90s. And, and we talked about this a little bit on Trailblazing Women. It was not uncommon to have a woman director, a woman producer. Like, I remember... Martha Coolidge, Amy, yeah, Allison the, Anders, yeah, I, Allison, I, exactly. Uh, there was a lot of Grace, my heart, absolutely. There no, was a lot of was, women that I was working what? with or auditioning for Nora Ephron, right, you know, right. And then it just sort of stopped. And so. at that same time, there were at least twenty movies in theaters that were black or you know black authored or, or stars, and another twenty in development. That, that was like the heyday, and I remember thinking, we're here, we are here, yes. it's not going to change, we're finally at the table, this is so great, and then literally a decade later, we're like, where are we? Why can't we get a movie made, you know? I was thinking that even with Crazy Rich Asians, I remember seeing the Joy Luck Club, sure. and again, there was... There was all sorts of movies, and the audience was primed to see a variety That's of right. films. That's right. Well, you know what stopped that is, the, you know, the big studios just decided they were going to really cater toward um, toys and, and, and Marvel characters, and all the money got sucked into that business because it's big business and because, it, you know, when it works, it makes a ton of money, mm-hmm. to the detriment of really human stories. I mean, like, just think of a movie like Terms of Endearment. Like, w- would that even get made now? Right. No, well, for a, a million dollars. Yeah, exactly. You would you would see it at Sundance. <laughs> Be one of these seventeen day movies. Uh, that is that, that the new number? Yes. For some reason, I hate to tell you, oh, it's like it's seventeen days. 
deferred payment. You're like, I'm working for free again. Yeah. How lucky me! Um, so this be- becomes a really interesting part of your of your career. Is that now you you somehow move over to uh, working with Jim Henson. Mm. How the heck did that happen? That happened because I got pregnant and had a kid. Well, I, I started the business with a son. Right. So just to be clear, I was the only one who had a kid. I was uh-huh. very young. I got pregnant right out of college and um, and had this baby and said, okay, now what do I do? And I ended up marrying the father and um, the father. And <laughs> and then 10 years went by and I was like, you know what? I, I really, I don't want to have an only kid. I want to have another kid. Um, he was a filmmaker. He was like, I have to make him, I have to, you know, direct a movie, whatever, whatever. I helped mm-hmm. him do that. And as soon as we got it going, I got pregnant, like two seconds later. Mm-hmm. And um, it didn't work out. We split up when my son was six months old. Um, and during all of that time, I realized that I was so dedicated to my work that I wanted to figure out a way to fuse my, my, my work life with my personal life. And mm-hmm. so I I don't know. They came to me from Jim Henson and said, hey, do you want to run, you know, the?" I was like, perfect. I've got young kids. I'll do that. Right. It was the biggest disaster of my career. It was the it was the time in my life when everything went to hell in a handbasket. I, I broke up with my husband. I was single for the first time. Um, I got into a business I knew nothing about, you know, the kids business, puppets, that right. whole nine. I was trying to marry who I was with who I thought I should be. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, Muppets from Space, which is a cult classic, <laughs> opens with Kermit singing Brick House. And it has got like a 70s funk soundtrack. Um, Elmo and Grouchland, my other movie from that, literally I had kids and parents running for the exits during the focus <laughs> groups. I'm like sitting in the back sweating going, oh, my God, I hired Mandy Patankin to be the villain. And he was so crazy and mean that the kids were scared out of their minds. If you look at that movie today, we have to stop the movie. We put Bert and Ernie in and say, don't be scared. It's OK, kids. Everything will be OK. That was the only way that movie was actually releasable. Um, but it, what it did teach me right. is to stick to my gut in terms of what I was attracted to and interested to. So I say to a lot of young filmmakers, know yourself. Know right. what you're passionate about. Right. Don't try to say, oh, I can be, I can do sci-fi or action or rom-com. No, just pick one. Just mm-hmm. pick one that you love and that you pay money to go see right. and become an expert at that. Um, so it was that and it was also, um, oh God, there were so many lessons. But one of the big ones was preparation. Mm-hmm. You can't do anything with a puppet unless you think about it beforehand. You can't be on set and say, hey, you know what? Can you just, while you're doing this, move stuff around the desk? It doesn't work with puppets. You have to bring right. the right armature to move things around. So right. having that kind of detailed prep really, really served me well um, in years after In years that. to come. Yeah. So after you left uh, Henson, is that when you found uh, Hustle and Flow? Or? Yes. After I left Henson, I got approached in my, my career. I always like get approached and go, do you want to go to Three Arts? As, you know, we're looking for an in-house producer. I'm like, oh, sure. I actually took almost nine months off to be a mom and um, started dancing again with my son, who was 16 at the time. And and he was a dancer, and he's an actor, and he's a writer and director now. But um, it was such a good time just to reconnect with real things, like mm-hmm. cooking and, right. and taking kids to school and things like that. Um, and 
And then also to know that the wheel that's turning, you just got to double dutch to get back in. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like it's going to spin on without you. It can and it will, but you can take time off and then go back to it. It's not going anywhere. That was like a big lesson to me. Yeah, I think especially for women. Especially for women. When you want to take time off to be with your kid and you're worried that they're going to forget you, they're not going to forget you. Just be present with whatever you're doing at the time. That that was a big, big lesson for me. Mm -hmm. So, um he, uh, Irvin, Irwin, a staff approached me and asked me if I wanted to um, work there. And I was like, sure. You know, I was bored, but I was like, okay, <laughs> yes, let me get back to work. And, um, but that was not a good fit either because I'm not a manager and everything was about servicing the clients and not the material. I'm so much about the material. Mm-hmm. Um, but while I was there, I did read Hustle and Flow and I had that same visceral heartbeat reaction to it. And um, and I think also it was that character of DJ who kept saying, like, is this it for me? Is this it for me? And and there must have been something echoing in my head, like what what else is out there? I'd, I'd spent all these years amassing, you know, a big house in Hancock Park and, you know, things inside the house. And I woke up one morning and I said, I don't want any of this. Mm-hmm. I don't want any of it. I called mm-hmm. my broker, the household, two weeks. I didn't even have a place to live. I was very impulsive back then. I would never do that again. <laughs> but I read that script, Hustle and Flow, and I was like, I, I, I can, this was the advent of um, digital. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh my God, I can make this movie for, you know, half a million dollars or something. I can sell my house. I could use that money. Right. I, there's something I really care about. It's like the, if the lowest of the low can be elevated through art, like if a pimp can actually find a better way to be mm-hmm. through self-expression. Wow, that's saying a lot. And I also yeah. thought like, in the black community, we had sort of deified and glorified pimps as mm-hmm. these cool dudes with all this money and the fur coat and everything. And I was like, nah, this dude is in a, is in a T-shirt sweating in an old Chevy. Right. That's what a, being a pimp is. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And he, and, and, and he wants a better life. So I talked myself into selling the house and using the money. Uh, and then once I had the money, I was like, okay, I probably need a partner. I probably shouldn't put all my money in. So I called John Singleton and I said, John, I got this great script. It took him like three months to read it. I don't know what he was doing. And finally, in the middle of some day, I was sitting around going, what have I done with my life? In like a (laughs) shitty little apartment. I was saying, "Um, this is so great. We have to do this. And I was like, oh, finally, you read it, blah, blah, blah. But he thought that we would go out because he was making Fast and the Furious and had Uh made a ton of money, that movies that had made money, that we would get real money to make it. Because I said, let's just do it together. It's a new thing, digital. We could do it and own it. Yeah. He was like, nah, Steph, we're going to, well, I'll get you the money. We spent another year going back to all the places I'd gone to and getting rejected again. And that's why John was like, you know what, I'm just going to put the money up. And he had the money and he put wow. it up and, you know, made a ton of money because we sold it that that year at Sundance for you know, a lot of money and everybody was made whole. So um, so tell me about the casting of Terrence Howard, mm. who it's always funny because I, w- that's the first movie of, uh, that I remembered seeing him in. Right. And then when you watch television... He pops up. It's in, the same role. He, 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 well, that, that too. Empire. Um, Empire it was the beginning. Empire. Of, Taraji and Terrence. Um, but yeah. So so he's Ter- just such a talent. Terrence. But I, Terrence. We knew. I knew Terry because the first time I saw him was in The Best Man, and uh-huh. in The Best Man, Malcolm Lee's like one of his first movies. He plays this irascible guy with a guitar who's just a troublemaker and so mm-hmm. sexy and so cute and. Um, we met with him, and we realized that he was at the same sort of psychic place the character was. 
Mm-hmm. He was like, is this it for me? Like, what, you know, what? He's in Mr. Holland's Opus. He is in Mr. Holland's Opus. That's right. He had done you know, that. Like he, it, but we had to, we spent years convincing him that the role needed to be a rapper. Because if you if you know Terrence at all, he carries a guitar everywhere and mm-hmm. he writes folk songs. So he spent a year writing an album of folk songs for DJ to sing. <laughs> like, <laughs> dude, he's not a folk singer. He's a rapper, you know. <laughs> Um, but it funny. took four years for us to get the money to put it together. So over that time, I got to know him pretty well. And yeah. um, he, of course, turned out to be the exact right person for the role. Everybody who wanted to finance it or who thought about financing it wanted us to hire a rapper because it was a rapper and rapping right. was big then. And it was yeah. like, oh, we can get, you know, all these people, you know. But we were like, no, it's it's Terrence. That's yeah. Just, it's just Terrence. We can't, I'm sorry. No. You know, that, and, and, and each time Craig Brewer, who's the writer-director – poor dude from Memphis was like turning away money because he we just knew in our hearts it was him and then of course when he got his Oscar nomination we felt completely vindicated yes he's really got a great uh you know um comes alive when you see him in the in the on films yes you know yes he really does um he's quite brilliant too actually the so again going back to on set any on set uh Yes, Wobbles I can give you. Or... I can give you. There were a lot on that. We, we <laughs> shot that movie in seventeen days. Um, wow. Actually, no, we shot that movie in four six day weeks. So it was twenty four mm-hmm. days. Six day weeks are killer. Yeah, I've done. Them. I don't do those anymore. Yeah, they're they're tough. Um, but there is a scene in the movie where he puts um, one of his girls out with the baby on the mm-hmm. porch, and John, who's such a hard dude. Um, he loves Marty Scorsese. He's like, we got. He kept saying, we got to do like Marty. We got to make it really hard. And I was like, what are you? What are you talking about? He's putting this girl and this and this child out. He goes, no, yeah. he's got to kick her down the stairs, <laughs> and then he's got to. And I was like, what? And I didn't know it because John and I had, were producing together for the first time. Yes, he had flown in um, Halle Berry's stunt double to Memphis and dressed uh-huh. her as that character in yes. order to have Terrence kick her rolling down the stairs. Oh my God. And I said, no, 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 no. That's not happening. First of all, Terrence is our lead. DJ is our lead. We're not having our lead in the first act of the movie kick this girl down the stairs. I right. mean, we'll never get back. We'll never get the audience back. No, you don't know. You don't know. Finally, I, I said to Craig, no, it just can't happen. We shut down. It was the middle of the night. We shut down. Luckily, Craig's mother was there that night. She uh-huh. never came, but she was there. And so finally, it was like Solomon. It was like, well, what does Craig's mother say? She'll decide, you know, whatever. And she just looked at me. She goes, I'm with Stell. And that was it. <laughs> and he was like, what? And Craig said, yeah, we're not kicking her down the stairs. So now he just puts her out. And John kept saying, it's like Flintstone. Like when they put Dino out and they just put him out. You can't just put her out. You got to kick her. But that was just one of the many things why it's important, I think, to have um, – you know, other voices at the table, because I'm not sure a man would have would have said that, to be honest with you. Right. It could be uh, just a gang mentality a and gang no mentality. other voices exactly. of, of just uh, doing something. Exactly. Well, you know, it's so funny when you mention that about about Marty. Do, 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 does anyone ever call? You know, because I, I, I knowing Marty a little bit, he to me is always very funny and very he kind of stands back and goes. Hey, it wasn't. Hey, Joe's the one kicking her out of the car. I'm, I'm just here filming oh, it. Oh, that's hilarious! You know, so he you know, always, I don't. He know, always but... seems like 
Hey, I that was Joe's idea. Uh, that's yeah. hilarious. Uh, no, I don't know if John ever called him, but um, but he was inspired by his movies. Yes, of course, yeah. as as we all as yeah. we all are. But I always right. laugh at like some of the things that they're you know. And in fact, we had watched <laughs> Taxi Driver religiously in prep for that. Well, movie. that's tough. Yeah. Which yeah. is you can look at the you can look at the the, the color palette. It's very very similar. Yes, he did a lot of things with um, the film, and then of course with the blood and darkening the the, the blood. So that's uh, so getting into the uh, was there any scenes that got cut that were heartbreaking, or you know, then you get into the editing. How yeah. does the producer affect? Because again, it's never over. Then you get into the editing room over. and shaping an Oscar-winning yes. performance yes. like that. Yeah. Any, I remember when um, we had an assembly. So what happens is the we finish shooting and then you give the editor a week to sort of put it all together. Mm -hmm. And then the director will go in and look at the cut. And, you know, um, I just remember Craig calling me weeping just from the side of the road. He was like, I, I let you all down. I just, I, yeah. I was like, dude, what are you really? No, don't tell me. He was like, no. And I was like, don't worry, don't worry. Like it'll, it'll come together. And uh, it's a process really. Yeah. It's a process. I mean, you rewrite the film through editing, right? Because now you only have what you have. Right. And so all the big ideas you had before you shot, you either use all of it, some of it, and, you know, sometimes not a lot of it. And right. you have to figure out how to tell the same story with the new materials. Mm -hmm. I love it. I think editing is just so, oh. much, so much fun. Yeah, um, me too. And so, yeah, so I just sit and do the same thing I do with script, which is to um, know the intention I think it's always really important to know what are we trying to say? What is mm -hmm. the most important thing to say here? So mm -hmm. as soon as you know that, you protect that. And then you can let things go that are great scenes or looking so good or, oh, my God, that camera movement. That doesn't matter anymore. What matters right. is what are the pieces we need to tell the story that's the most important story that we set out to tell? Yes. I think that that's one of the hardest things. And that's one of the lessons that I learned from Marty being on the set with him is just sitting next to him. And if a tracking shot is... He, it's just like it's too long it's gonna yeah. be cut yep. you know it's too long like i'm gonna have to put a dissolve in yes. that and that's an interesting dance for a producer to know that a director is having so much fun yeah, doing exactly. this and you're just sitting there going mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's good and then knowing when to say you know what dude enough like right. it's over and right. it's so interesting i don't know if this is true this sounds totally sexist and maybe it is but we're all biased this is just the world we live in um I've noticed when I have female directors, mm. they know exactly what they want to do. Right. They're super prepared. They get it and they move on. Mm -hmm. And they get it and they go home. Right. Guys are not the same way. They can be prepared, but they love. It's just like, nah, let's get it this way or that right. way. It's like it becomes a contest of 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 of, of um, survival in a way, yeah. you know. And it's it's just it's just interesting to sort of note the difference, right? I I, I totally agree with you. If 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 anything, right, the girl is already thinking about the next. <laughs> Yeah, and probably because we know we have to come to set totally prepared yes. to earn the respect <laughs> of the crew and the actors. Yes. Where guys will show up and go, hey, let's figure it out. You know, mm -hmm. what are we going to do? Let's run the lines. Let's figure it out. Yes. You know, so. Uh, so any fun stories from being at the Academy Awards? Well, I do remember that it was a mixture of sort of chagrin and pride when uh, Hard Out Here for a Pimp won the Oscar. Uh, <laughs> We were, we were, well, my biggest concern was, and it, and, and, and it happened, which is that they're going to glorify Pimpton with that song. I yeah. knew it. I knew they weren't going to do it. Cause I kept saying to Gil, 
the, like, uh, please protect the integrity of the movie and what we were trying to say. You mm-hmm. know, for my for my money, that that should have just been like like sweaty t-shirts sitting there. But, you know, now they had Tarajis and strutting with the big coat and everything. And it was just, right. it was, it was, it was, it was, it wasn't in the same spirit that we made the movie, you mm-hmm. know, and, and then we won. <laughs> uh, and Craig and I were in the balcony, I remember. Um, and we just jumped up. We were so excited just to make a mark, yeah. just for our movie to make a mark. But it was also like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, I felt, I felt, I felt somewhat embarrassed, to be honest, of the, the way that it was, um, you celebrated. Right. But then you look back, uh, you know, some, there have been some funny songs that won for, Oscars, because again, when you're voting, when people don't realize it, you're like, "Well, I didn't vote for them for best actor, right. so I may as well." Give I did like, I did like the movie, right. so I'm right. going to go and for maybe the Maybe that song. is, maybe that is. Who yeah. knows? Who knows? Um, so then, after after that uh, uh, film, another sort of big mm-hmm. success. What uh, movies did you make after that? After that, I made one of one of my favorite movies that I made called Something New. It was Sanaa Lathan and Simon Baker. Mm-hmm. It was an interracial love story, romantic comedy, way ahead of its time. Um, even in 2004, whenever we made it, um, uh, Focus made that movie. And I, I, I actually get more fan mail on that movie than almost anything. It's oh. interesting. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I've been really focused... In my in my old life, because now I have a new life, but in my old life, really focused on first time filmmakers, mm-hmm. just the value of getting new voices like exponentially telling their stories out into the world was extremely satisfying to me. Um, it, it it and so during that time, Santa Hamri, who was, uh, ended up being very instrumental in, on Empire, it was her first movie. Um, uh, Gerard McMurray, Burning Sands, a movie that we made a few years ago that. Um, his next movie was The Purge, which made over $100 million. He went, we made a million-dollar movie at Netflix to that. Mm-hmm. Um, my sons made their first movie, French Dirty, which um, was my acting debut, <laughs> uh, which we own. It's the only movie we own, and we license it to Netflix, and we're actually making more money than almost any other movie. It's crazy. Um, uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood's movie, um, Beyond the Lights, which was such a beautiful, sweet movie that we made. Um I'm about to, and then we have movies in 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 the can. We have the weekend with Stella McGee, which is um, premiering at TIFF. Mm-hmm. Uh, young black female director, writer director, who's really coming up, really interesting. Um, we made People's Tina Chisholm's movie with um, David Allen Greer and Kerry Washington and Miss Diane Carroll. That was such a just a beautiful moment when we rolled up to set the first day on the bus, and she stood up and turned around and said. Just seeing all you young black <laughs> people doing it for yourselves. It was just like everybody's just weeping and crying. Um, for me, it's so much about um, the experience of doing it. You right. Know? It's it's like at the end of the day, that's what we have. Like mm. it, it, things happen for the distribution and the marketing of the movie that you really have so, so little control over. Right. And so I've just learned to really appreciate the creative juju of being there and birthing it mm-hmm. and making it and the camaraderie and the le- life lessons learned. Um, I have another movie in the can that's coming out next year called Juanita. It's Alfred Woodard's, you know, she's never been number one on the call sheet. 
She's no. a she's a national treasure. Yes. Um, so this is her movie. It's called Juanita, and she's the titular character, and her husband had to write the script for her. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a beautiful movie about a middle-aged woman who um, has sort of three trifling kids, and her only respite is fantasies of Blair Underwood. Mm-hmm. Blair Underwood's in the movie as <laughs> himself, his, the fantasy version of Blair Underwood, which is kind of true to life. Um, but when he hits her up for money, in her fantasy, she realizes she's got to make a change. So she opens up a map, she closes her eyes, she picks a spot, and she goes on an adventure. And it's the, when I showed my mother the movie, she was weeping. She was like, this is the best movie you've ever made. I was like, is it? Is it? And she was like, yes. And I said, why? And she was well, because you don't know what it's like to be. And I was like, oh, my God, representation is so, so yes. important. I've never made a movie with a, with a woman of a certain age. Mm-hmm. And so my mother sees herself in that movie. Right. And it, that was so such a powerful reminder of what mm-hmm. we do and the value of, of putting folks on screen that are not represented. Um, yeah, I feel like the Brits have that a little bit over us. They with, do. With people like Judy Dench and exactly. Helen Mirren. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, they doesn't matter. You know. No, and in fact, as you age in that kind of society, you're given more latitude, you're given more um, accolades, like you're mm. cherished and you're valued. And I think America has a, a you know fixation on youth that... Um, it's, uh, it's stunting. Well, again, going back to the past and, and talking about, some, I'm always fascinated by somebody like Mae West, you know, who really wasn't even successful. Just as she was in her 40s. Right. You know, she just had good cam- camera people to hide everything. Right. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the phenomenon of a superhero film like the Black Panther. And mm. again, in, in terms of we were saying like double-edged sword, is there ever a fear of you just get like, oh, I'm thrilled that it's successful, but does this mean we're only going to make like big budget movies where most of the animation is shopped out and actors really won't carve out a great character? No, and- because I mean, if you look at Ryan Coogler's career, starting with Fruitvale Station and then... Um, and then Creed, and then Black Panther, you see that value in what he brought to Black Panther as a Marvel uh, story. I mean, one Mm -hmm. of the most powerful things for a black woman who doesn't process her hair is that there was only natural hair in that movie. Mm -hmm. That's a huge statement. Like, Mm -hmm. just that in and of itself is a huge social statement of, of pride, of beauty, of cultural identity, Get all weep. I mean, it, it's important. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean. And so, I don't. I, I I think that the success of that only opens doors for us. I don't. I don't think like we're, we'll we'll be in a situation where we only want to see black folks in you know sci-fi. I I don't think so. I just think there's so many stories that we've yet to tell. I'm I'm um, developing a Shirley Chisholm movie right now, mm-hmm. and um, just just bringing her story to light has been such a joy just in educating people who are reading it around town and saying, just go look at that on YouTube or whatever. That to me is where we are now, which is in the nineties we were, um, there were so many movies, so many black movies, but if you look back, most of them were sort of gang kind of movies. Um, gang movies are like romantic comedies. Mm -hmm. That was pretty much it. And now, What's happening with when you have talent like Lena Waithe and Justin Simeon and you you're you Barry Jenkins and mm-hmm. Donald Glover and I don't know if you've watched Terrence Nance's um, 
Flyness on HBO. I have not. Random Acts of Flyness. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's listening to this, you have to go watch that. This is a half hour. I can't even describe what it is. Mm -hmm. It's just brilliant, mind-bending, mind-blowing. It's a combination of animation and stand-up and vignettes and all kinds of things. And it is, it's so, I don't even think there's anything white like that on the air. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So to me, I feel like we were sort of pigeonholing ourselves in what we thought people wanted to see and what people were willing to pay to see. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like that has broken up more. And again, we're such a black and white world. I'm saying for black audiences and black filmmakers, the, the crazy rotations, which I saw months ago and have just been touting it everywhere. Everybody, everybody needs to have their, their their stories told right they just really do Mm -hmm. and so i feel like now we're at a place where we can tell all different kinds we can tell queer stories we can tell you know any country music black story. we can tell whatever we want to tell now right um and so i don't think we're gonna settle for being pigeonholed Mm -hmm. do you think that the sacrifice i totally agree with you as a creative person i feel like the sacrifice is but you're not going to pay to get a lot of money for it, and you just have to do it yourself. Well, That's- yes and no, but I, but this is what I'm saying. Like with Dear White People, um, you know, which is a movie that I I produced, and then now we have we're about to start third season on on Netflix. I mean that 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 that's. That's a competitive show that we get paid to create and produce. It yes. has a real budget. You yeah, know? We're, I feel that there's an audience. Like, that's where maybe it's just my entertainer sense. I always, I'm never afraid of the audience. I always feel there's an audience for these kind of films. Well, but that's what's what's happening is because of streamers like Netflix and, yeah. and Amazon, they don't have the burden that, you know, the broadcasters have. And so right. that get, that opens other doors. I mean, mm-hmm. I've made like three or four things at Netflix because in this transitional period, other traditional places didn't want to make them, but they were mm-hmm. happy to make them and they did really well for them because they have an algorithm that can find... Burning Sands was about... Um, hazing at a, at, at a historically black colleges mm-hmm. and nobody wanted to make that movie it was like six young black guys being beat up every day mm-hmm. and the choices that they make and how much they'll take and when will they say no and when will they stand up for their brothers and the script was incredibly well written but it was like mm, yeah no I don't, I don't think I want to do that can you make it more college can you make it more fun you know mm-hmm. and it was like there's not much fun in <laughs> hazing that's why we're making the movie and uh, Netflix just embraced it they were like oh yes and then it went to Sundance and then you know it was it was because it was topical it was there was there was talk about you know we got bl- boycotted by the frats which was great because you know, it was like oh maybe we should see this so yeah um so I just think that it, it's crazy created it it's like a diamond under pressure it's like broken into all these other pieces that you can go and 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 put together the right mm-hmm. thing i'm now back to working in studios because at this point in my life there's bigger stories i want to tell and i need more money to do it yes um but then there's also amazing financiers that have popped up like level forward level forward is a uh, um abigail disney and adrian becker uh, put together this fund to first buy the weinstein company when it was on the block mm. and then when they realized that was going to be problematic they said hey why don't we just start our own studio so they have started their own studio with 
incredible, like inclusion writers and everything. Uh, 10% of all their profits go back to nonprofits that support women and underserved communities. They're really focusing on women's stories. They're in film, television, uh, Broadway, um, audiobooks, everything. And they create a component to go along with development so that by the time you get to the end result, marketing is already like done for you because you have so many followers and engagers who mm-hmm. know about the project. So mm-hmm. I'm just, I just, you know, I am an optimist. I am a producer. That's what I do. But I, I'm just super excited. Oh, well, awesome. Well, thanks, Stephanie, so much for being Thank here. Thank you for having me. Please come back. Yes. I will. Anytime. Um, you can find uh, Stephanie's Homegrown Pictures website at homegrownpictures.net. Mm-hmm. And she's at Stephanie Elaine on Instagram and on Twitter. Thank you Thank so you. much, Stephanie. I appreciate it. And you can find Ileana's book, I Blame Dennis Hopper, in yes, bookstores and online. And it's it's very great. Good. You should buy it. Oh, also, you. look at our Facebook page. Uh, you know, do all the things. Like us, follow us, all of that. Yes. Like us, follow us. It's so important. I, I, you know, when I meet young actresses, they, they cry. They go, and there's another girl on the show, and she's got nine million followers, and I only have a hundred thousand. I mean, I think, like, my God, the that's pressure. what they have to think about. Oh yeah, yeah, I yeah, know the, the pressure. I in my day, you just you know copied Judy Holiday and me. <laughs> 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 stole from Goldie Hawn and you were ready <laughs> thank uh, you anyway thank you so much as we always end the show everyone's life is like a movie with a beginning a middle and an end and this is the end of our show today have a great day everyone thanks so much Kevin Undergaro Phil Svitek and the entire Popcorn Talk Network we would like to thank you for tuning in for questions or comments be sure to visit popcorntalk.com I'm Sir Richard Wentworth and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.